Uh, we want to think about the theological foundations of biblical counseling. What I, my task in this hour is to help you see the connection between theology and life. And we're going to move very rapidly through an overview of theology and help you to see how vital it is as you want to disciple and counsel others. So this is overview. This is not everything uh, by any stretch, but I hope it will give you a little bit of a taste. Let me pray as we get started. That Father, thank you for the evening. Thank you for time together. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who love Christ and out of their love for Christ want to be equipped to serve Him and serve His church more effectively. So would you guide our time together? Would you, uh, would you uh, train us in this hour? Would you expose us to the vitality of your word? And might we, out of this time together, um, see the connection of your word to life in a more dynamic way? And might we, even in this hour, become more skilled in caring for those you've entrusted to us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you are going to say, theology, seriously, Terry, I mean, why, why do we have to study theology? I mean, why can't we get to the good stuff of helping people? Well, theology is really important, as two theologians have instructed us. Boy, Lucy says, look at it rain. And did you guys see it rain today? In the last three and a half months at my house, we had one seventeenth of an inch of rain, and today we had two and a half inches. My wife came in with a rain gauge while I was working and said, "Look, two and a half inches. What if it floods the whole? What if it floods the whole world?" Lucy says, "It will never do that." Linus responds. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind. To which Linus says. Sound theology has a way of doing that. That is my all-time favorite cartoon, without a doubt. And he's absolutely right. Good theology guides our thinking and guides our lives. It is critical to what we do. Um, Studying theology is important because it is a means to a comprehensive framework of understanding God and His Word, and we might add, and His world, right? So God has created the world, and the world is theological. Everything in the world has theological overtones, and understanding what God says about this world helps guide our time uh, and how we respond. God has also commanded us to pursue a rigorous understanding of Him as His multiple exhortations to teach, to keep, and to protect sound theology demonstrate. So, um, just one example, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, He's conceited and He understands nothing. You need to have doctrine, He says, that is sound. It conforms to godliness. That word sound that you find used repeatedly in First and Second Timothy and Titus, it's the word uh, from which we get our word hygienic. Um, so it's clean and it's right, it's faithful, it's sound, it's pure. Um, and you just find that kind of language all throughout the New Testament. God's commanded us to have a, an appropriate and a clear and a sound and a true uh, theology. Also, everyone lives his theology. 
So Jesus says, Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you hear someone talking, their theology is talking, their belief system is talking. And people will say, oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, contraire. That is exactly what you meant. Jesus says your heart's being exposed. What you don't like is that your heart is on display. And that's what you're fighting against. But you absolutely did mean what you say. Now, sometimes we, we speak uh, with lack of clarity, right? So we use the wrong word because we don't know the right word. Our vocabulary is deficient. That's a different thing. But when the guy who's a drunkard gets drunk and he calls his wife all kinds of vile names, and the next day he goes to her and he says, Oh, I didn't mean that. I was drunk. He absolutely meant it. What happened was his drunkenness removed the gates over his lips that would normally restrain him from saying that. But those things have been in his heart. The alcohol merely loosened the lips so that what was in his heart could come out. So everyone lives his theology. We do what we believe. Um, So write this sentence down. You will hear it over and over from me and from others. We do what we do because we want what we want. So our, our actions flow out of desires. We do what we do because we want what we want and we want what we want because we believe what we believe. So everything we do comes out of desires and desires come out of a belief system. So that's just another way of saying everybody lives their theology. So theology, in order to change life, theology has to change. We need to think a new kind of way in order to live a new kind of way. And that's our task as biblical counselors. We might say it another way. Weak and unstable theology leads to weak living. So you find someone that isn't doing well at life and not succeeding in life and they have a bad theology somewhere. There's something, there's something um, incomplete or inadequate or immature in their theology. That's why they live the way they live. Packer says it this way, all theology is also spirituality in the sense that it has an influence, good or bad, positive or negative, on its recipient's relationship or lack of relationship to God. If our theology does not quicken the conscience and soften the heart, it actually hardens both. If it does not encourage the commitment of faith, it reinforces the detachment of unbelief. If it fails to promote humility, it inevitably feeds pride. Packer is saying you're moving one way, or you're moving one of two ways. You're either moving towards Christ and godliness, or you're moving away from Christ and towards ungodliness. No one is stagnant. No one is holding still. You're always moving one direction or the other. And theology is what drives that. What you believe is compelling what you do and how you live. And so we want to help people change their theology and how they believe and have that influence how they act. When we're talking about systematic theology, what do we mean by that? Well, the word theology is simply the the combination of two Greek words, theos and logos. The word theos means God. The word logos means word can sometimes be translated or used as doctrine or teaching. And so when we're using the word theology, all we mean by that is we're talking about doctrine that's related to God or teaching that's related to God or an understanding about God. So systematic theology then 
is the organized, harmonious arrangement of all known truth about God and His works. It is based fundamentally and primarily on Scripture so that the understanding of Him is both comprehensive and transforming. So systematic theology is all the systems as it relates to God. So all of all that is knowable about God, we have systematized, put in some kind of structure and order so that we can understand God better. And there are generally about 11 different systems, and that's what we're going to overview now in the next 50 minutes. Hang on tight. Um, I have given you, I've given you a lot of notes with the anticipation that some of you um, are going to be moving forward and at some point wanting to do the exams for certification with ACBC. And so I've tried to give you um, more notes to help you in that process. We've got a ton of scripture in the notes. Don't anticipate that I'm going to talk about even one-tenth of the scripture that's in there. We don't have time. But I put that in there uh, to just help you understand uh, where these things are coming from. First of all, epistemology. Epistemology is the doctrine of the knowledge of God. It's actually just simply the doctrine of knowledge. So how do we know what we know uh, is what epistemology is. Well, one thing we know about God as it relates to epistemology is that God is inconceivable and He is incomprehensible. That is, we can't know Him. So... Um, Isaiah 40, 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Who is like God? How will you explain God? How will you know God and how will you reveal Him? There is, there is an aspect about God that He is transcendent beyond us, beyond our comprehension, beyond our knowing. And yet, God has revealed Himself to us and thus is knowable. We'll talk about this in just a moment. One of the primary places He's revealed Himself to us is here. And he's also revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word of, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might behold his glory, right? The glory of the only begotten of the Father. So when we look at Christ, we look at the Father. We see the Father. That's what Jesus says to Philip in John 14, right? He's, when Philip says, how do we know where you're going? Have I been so long with you, Philip? And you don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know where I'm going. So God has revealed himself to us so that we know something of him. He is the source of all truth. If there is something that is true, it is from God. Satan is not a revealer of truth. The world system is not a revealer of truth. God is the revealer of truth and it comes through His Word, through His Spirit, through His Son. Um, so our knowledge, the means by which we want to help people then is what? Not the world system, but God's system. God's Word. He's revealed truth and we want to use that truth that He's revealed to help them. If people want to have a sound mind, they must see things as God sees them and define things as God defines them. Um, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, right? So if you want to know how to live, you've got to know God. You've got to fear Him, respect Him, honor Him. Here's the truth 
Don't think you can ever know everything there is to know about God. You will not know it even in eternity. He's an infinite God who is not able to be plumbed to the depths of our knowledge, even in eternity. But you can know something of Him. And you can know Him and have fellowship with Him. He has designed it that way. So He's told us what He's like so that we can be conformed to His image and so that we can help others. When we know God, according to Packer, we will have great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. So He's revealed Himself. Oh, brothers and sisters, get to know Him. And out of the overflow of what you know of Him, um, help others as well. Packer again, we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. We must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities within the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. So again, our task is to know Him as you are a biblical counselor, as you're a disciple, as you're a trainer, as you're a functioning part of the body of Christ. Your task is to know Christ, to know the Father, and then contagiously share that knowledge with those that you have been placed in their lives as an influencer. So with your counselees, with your disciplees, with your mentees, uh, with your children, with your mates, Uh, Those whom God has given you to influence, you let them be influenced by your knowledge of God. Second system. Think about bibliology. When we're talking about bibliology, bibliology, we're talking about the doctrine of the scriptures. First important point about scriptures, the scriptures are God-breathed. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. When, when Paul uses that word inspired, that's a good word, that's a good translation, but it has a misnomer. Um, you're going to see on, Sunday, on Saturday afternoon if you're a college football fan or on Sunday afternoon if you're a college football fan or here in about a month if you're a baseball fan, you're going to hear somebody say, uh, we were really motivated to go out and play. Coach gave us a really inspiring message before the game and, and we were just really ready to play and we were fired up, motivated by that inspiring speech. Well, great, but that's not what Paul means. Now, On Sunday morning, I hope you're inspired in that way. You ought to be motivated. That ought to be happening. But that's not what that word means. That word means it's God-breathed. That God breathed it out. That God spoke it out. And when, when Paul says that, what he means is all Scripture is sourced in God. It comes from Him. He is the origin of all Scripture. Scripture originates with Him. And because of that... It's true because God who cannot lie when he speaks must speak truth. And if he has revealed something, anything, then what he has revealed must be true, which means we can trust everything that's in the book. But it also means something else. It also means the scriptures have authority. They can compel. They will compel. And they can compel in every area of our lives. They're profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is adequate 
for everything in the spiritual life. The scriptures speak to every area of life and are relevant for every situation. It didn't, by God's grace, happen to me today. But it has not been unusual that on a Friday morning when I go into my office to start working on my sermon for Sunday morning that I boot up my computer and I get some kind of error message. And something has happened to some program and it's not working. You need to reinstall. Yes, I need to reinstall. And so... Where is that in here? Where's the boot up command for my Mac operating system? And Lacey, it's, you don't need to insert a comment about Windows being superior to Mac. We, we know that you need to repent. So, so the Bible doesn't talk about computer programs, right? The Bible doesn't tell you how to fix your alternator on your car. But the Bible does tell me that how I need to respond when I am under pressure, when my schedule is being pressed, and when things aren't going the way I think they need to go. And the Bible is wholly adequate on Friday morning for that. The Bible is wholly adequate when I walk out of church on Sunday afternoon and I've got a flat tire for how I need to respond. The Bible is wholly adequate when my three-year-old doesn't do everything I want her to do. And I come home for lunch and I think, okay, I'm here for lunch. I've got 45 minutes and now my three-year-old falls apart and it's a 45-minute lunch becomes a two-hour and 45-minute lunch. Um, and that's a true story. That happened. Um, I said to a friend of mine, I think, I think it was one of the elders at the time, I said, I spanked her seven times. <laughs> to which he said, is that all? And... Uh, But in that situation, the Bible is adequate for me to train my heart to how I can train her heart, right? The Bible is adequate for all of those things. A failure to acknowledge that will lead to a pursuit of comfort rather than obedience. A submission to the authority of personal experience over the authority of Scripture. And an exaltation of contemporary thinking rather than the principles of the Bible. And friends, you go outside these walls and that's exactly what you will see. And you'll get all kinds of people telling you all kinds of things that are based on personal experience and personal authority and they, they ignore the biblical principles and they suppose that they're the answer and they are not the answer. When you're sitting in a counseling room and somebody's life is falling apart, you don't want to bring your wisdom, you want to bring God's wisdom. You may have some good ideas, but that's all they are is they, they are ideas. God has truth. And what they need to hear in that moment is not your idea, but God's truth. And so you need to know this book so that you can bring this book to bear on their situation. Theology proper, doctrine of God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is the most revelatory thing about us, um, what we think about God. And our understanding of God is going to shape uh, how we do ministry, both in the counseling room and in other places as well. 
God has revealed himself to us in his word in which he demonstrates his attributes. So everything we know about God, we're typically going to think about in terms of God's attributes. And there are a lot of different ways to divide up the attributes of God. I typically use the terms, the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. It used to be that when I would say the communicable attributes of God, people would say, huh, what is that? Well, in 2020, we all learned about communicable diseases. And so when we're talking about the communicable attributes of God, we're talking about those attributes of God in which there is some measure of that attribute in mankind. When we talk about his incommunicable attributes, we're talking about those things in which there is nothing of correspondence in mankind. For instance, there is some measure of holiness... In mankind, not perfect holiness, not absolute holiness, not infinite holiness, but there is a holiness, a set-apartness, a sanctification that is evident in man. There is a goodness of God that we see in mankind. There is grace of God that we see in mankind. There is anger of God that we see even righteously in mankind. So those are all communicable attributes. They're attributes that are reflected in men. There are other kinds of attributes that are incommunicable. Somebody want to hazard a guess? Infinite? Okay. That one's kind of borderline, the omnis, right? So not in fullness, but we have knowledge, right? We have an ability, we have a capacity to think and reason. So we're, we are created in God's image in that way. We're created for fellowship, for, for a relationship that's reflected in our knowledge of people, etc. His self-existence is one of the easiest ones. Who's self-created here? Uh, who continues to be self-created? Right? So God always has existed, will never cease existing, and has his life within himself. In other words, he sustains his life. Jesus demonstrates that when, he, when he's on the cross. When it says in uh, John 19, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He didn't slump his head after he died. He put his head down and then he voluntarily set aside his life. Nobody has ever died like that. His life was not taken from him. He gave his life. And that's an expression of his self-existence. So nobody else is like that. So when we're thinking about the attributes of God, we're going to put them in those broad categories. As we think about the attributes of God, most people, they're going to get varying lists. Most people give you lists of about 18 to 20 uh, different kinds of attributes. Wayne Grudem in his theology has 38 different attributes. Uh, but they're, they're, those are the ways that we functionally think about the nature of God. Beyond that, we also want to understand that God is a triune being. That is, He is one in essence and three in person. And the three persons are distinct in relationships and equal in authority. Um, so we find, for instance, that truth related in First Peter chapter 1. So Peter says he's writing to a series of churches that are scattered. And he writes, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So there he puts the three people of the Trinity in common union with one another, each having the same authority behind the message that Peter will write 
to the various people of the churches. B.B. Um, Warfield has defined the triunity of God this way. There is one and only true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. So they have the same essence as members of the Godhead. They're equal in nature and character, but they are distinct in personality. So they are distinct persons. That sounds awfully technical, yes, and it needs to be that way because if you don't get that technical, then you end up in some kind of error and heresy. Um, So the best way I know to communicate it is this picture, right? So, find my arrow, here we go. This whole circle represents the unity of the Godhead. So everything in the circle is God. Yet within this one entity that is God are three distinct personalities, the Spirit, the Father, the Son. The Son is not the Father, and yet He is in the Father. He is vitally connected to the Father. The Father is not the Spirit, yet He is in the Spirit in that same kind of vitality and the same with the Spirit and the Son. Um, All three of them, are equally God. They are all equal in nature as God. None of them are diminished in deity in any way. None is superior to the other. And yet the fact that they are three persons reflects that they have three distinct roles within the Godhead. So all God, all of the same nature as God, and yet distinct in what they do within the Godhead. Um, What I like about that diagram is it demonstrates the unity of God, the oneness of God, the distinction of personalities, the distinction of relationship, and the priority of the purpose of the Godhead, that is, that they all live to glorify uh, one another. I think that's in your notes, isn't it? Yeah, great. Um, Why is that important? Because... Since God is God, all life terminates on Him. We live for Him, to please Him, to glorify Him. Life is not about me. It's about Him. And when someone comes into your counseling room, life is going to be revolving around Him or her. Fix my problem. Fix me. Or if I'm here with someone else, fix my problem, which happens to be her. You laugh. (laughs) It's true. I've not had it happen to me yet, but I've had multiple counselors tell me that they've had people come in with binders and they put the binder down and it is the record of wrongs of that person. And the goal is fix her. And that's not the goal. The goal is to live for the glory of God because... This, he's the priority. He alone stands as God, not me, not her, not anybody else. Life terminates not on us, life terminates on him. So the goal is to get people there. So I tell people when they come into the counseling room, they dump their problem. I've read their PDI and we talk about their problem. And I just look them square in the eye and I say, my my goal is not to fix you. 
and she's cheering. Uh, or or she's, 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 she's not cheering. And I say, my goal is not to fix you either. And they're looking at me like, well, if your goal is not to fix me and not to fix me, what is your goal? I say, my goal isn't even to fix your marriage. I'm not interested in fixing your marriage. It's not technically true, but that's not the priority. Well, why are we here? Why did we just spend an hour and a half for you asking questions? Because my goal is to take you where you are in your situation and help you learn to live for Christ. That's my goal. Because my goal is to help you honor Him. And in that way, when you, husband, honor Christ, no matter what she does, you will be pleasing to God and you will be satisfied. And my goal for you, wife, is to help you live for Christ. And when you do that, no matter what He does, if He never changes, you will be happy and satisfied. But then guess what happens if both of you are living for Christ? Then you're moving together and your problem will also be solved. So my my goal is not to make your marriage a priority. My goal is to make Christ the priority. And where does that come from? It comes out of my theology proper about God. That God is preeminent, not man. And when you walk into the counseling room with that perspective, now people can be helped because it keeps them from terminating life on themselves and thinking that they are the center of the universe and helps them to live for Christ who is the center of the universe. Um, I got to preaching and got too far down in my notes. (coughs) You're going to let it slide, thank you. Um, Okay, that's theology proper. Are you starting to see... Theology is relevant. It's not just a big book called Bible Doctrine by John MacArthur. It's, that's, it's not just that. It's life. And that's a great book, by the way. You need to buy that. Um, it's not just that, though. It's life. Uh, theology is vitally important. Anthropology, the doctrine of man. What do we believe about man? Man is God's creation. He is made in the image and likeness of God. That's in the very first, first page of the book. That we are made like Him to emulate Him, to look like Him. And every person you see is an image bearer of Christ and of God. Every person you see at the grocery store, every person you see at the hardware store, every neighbor you have, every relative you have, they all bear the image of God. Which means, man is not an animal, Man is not a victim of his environment and every man is made for God's glory to reveal the nature and the character of God. That holds man really high, doesn't it? That's what informs our position on the priority of life before we actually see the life, before the life comes out of the womb. And it informs what we think about life at the end as people are getting ready to go into eternity, right? So it informs all those things and everything in between. There's another reality about man and that is that all mankind is under sin because of man's identification with sin in Adam. So because Adam sinned, Adam was our federal head, And Adam was our representative, and because he sinned, we are connected to him in his sin. All men are sinners. 
They're born with original sin and all men are sinners because they sin. That is, their own sin condemns them. Such a helpful verse, Romans 5, verse 12. Listen to this. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. In other words, Adam sinned, and that sin of Adam led to death, and that death went to all men, and sin went to all men. In other words, Adam sinned, and he sinned as our representative, and we're all stuck with his sin. That's called original sin. And then he says, same verse, next phrase, because all sinned. And there you've got the other side. I'm a sinner, not just because I'm an Adam, and I can't just say, well... God, it's, you know, I wouldn't have sinned except for the Adam thing. I am a sinner, not just because of Adam, but because of me. And I demonstrate my sinfulness by my sin. And so all sinners are, all men are sinners because of our Adamic relationship and all men are sinners because of what we do. That's our, it's our nature. It is, it is what we are born with. And we, we see this even in children, right? Even when they're born. And you go to the hospital and you see them in the, in the window, right? Or you go into the room and you see mom and she's holding the baby and you go, what a cute little sinner. <laughs> right? Under the curse of God. Condemned. Damned. Right? Don't say that if you're going to make a hospital call. <laughs> but honestly, I do think that pretty regularly. <laughs> because it's true. And apart from the grace of God, that child is headed to hell. And you've got to have that in your mindset. That's not, that's not, a, that's not a sinless person. Now at that point, the person has not volitionally sinned. And there's a whole theology there we don't have time for. But... Um, that person has not volitionally sinned at that point, And I believe that God would take that child to heaven if that child would die. But it does have the Adamic nature. And it will sin at some point with volition. And it doesn't take very long, does it? My two... It takes a little longer than that. My two-year-old daughter, back at, you can tell how old this was. Back in the day, we had a VCR, right? And the VCR was down about that high off the floor, a foot and a half. And um, I was watching something on TV and she was toddling around the room and she walked over to the VCR and she looked at me and I said, don't touch it. Don't put your hand. She looks at me and she looks back. Don't touch it. Right in the slot. Right? Willful, intentional, two years old. Willful disobedience. Um, and at that point, she's condemned by her own actions. <laughs> she was also spanked for her own actions. <laughs> All men sin because they're sinners, and they're sinners because they sin. Man is totally depraved. By that we mean, on his own, he cannot do good. Everything he does is sin. Everything. Because he does nothing for the glory of, God, glory of God. So then, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. A, an unregenerate man never does anything for God's glory. At some level, everything he's doing is operating out of the flesh for himself. 
I don't need God. Now, he may not say it that bluntly, but that is what's going on in his heart. I don't need God. I'm good on my own. That condemns him. He takes his child for an ice cream. It condemns him because he's doing it for self and not for God's glory. Um, everything... So when we say a man is totally depraved, we mean on his own. There is nothing he can do that is good. Everything he does is sin. Nothing he does is for God's glory. His heart is deceitfully wicked. His goal in life is selfishness and only evil continually. Um, Every aspect of his life is tainted by sin. Now he may not be as sinful as he might be, so there, there's always something more that you can do to be even more reprehensible and more sinful. So it's not that everything he's doing is absolutely fully sinful in action and deed, but it does mean that every aspect of his life is tainted by sin. Nothing is unstained by sin. When we think about man as well, we understand that man is directed by his heart and mind. Uh, what we might call the mission control center. And this is what needs change. This is what we're addressing in the counseling room. And so you've got this diagram there. So the outer man, that's the visible stuff, right? That's the stuff that we do. That's the stuff that we see. That's that's the seven-year-old's temper tantrum, right? That's That's the husband's gracious care of his wife who is ill. That's the outer man stuff. That's kind words. That's angry words. And then there is also the inner man. That's the stuff that we can't see, but it's compelling everything that we do. So the inner man consists of things like the will, desires, conscience, thoughts, beliefs, emotions. This is what we call the mind and the heart, right? So out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying, out of the overflow of what you're thinking and wanting, desiring, you speak. So the inner man, what's here on the inside, drives and compels and gets exposed in the outer man. And when people are coming for counseling, invariably what they're wanting fixed is this stuff. Change my circumstances. I've got cancer. I don't know how to deal with it. Change it. My, my wife, my husband is responding in ungodly ways. Change that. Um, I am compelled by drunkenness. Change that. So it's an outer man issue. And we understand that all that stuff in the outer man is not an outer man issue. My problem is not drunkenness. My problem is what I am wanting that is compelling me to drink. And so if all I do is address the issue about, well, you need to stay out of this bar, you need to clean out everything out of your refrigerator so you don't have any alcohol in the house, Um, you need to call me every time you're tempted to go to the liquor store, well, those may be helpful rules, but they don't change a thing. Those desires that are compelling the drunkenness are still there, and they will continue to be there until I address the heart issue. And so when we're thinking about an anthropology of man, our understanding of man is that what they're doing is coming out of the heart. I want to help him change his behavior, but ultimately what I really want to help him change is change his heart and what he's desiring and what he's wanting because we do what we do because we want what we want and we want what we want because we believe what we believe. 
So that's where we're going to be focusing our, cha- our, our counseling. And what needs change particularly is that we need to learn to glorify God. And stop living for self. And most of my problems are self-inflicted because I am living for self and not for God and His glory. All right, we must move on. Hammer theology, the doctrine of sin. What is sin? Sin is a willful transgression of the law of God, intentionally missing God's standard because one is rebelliously dissatisfied with God. Um, Who's heard this definition of, of, of sin? Sin is missing the mark of God's standard. Anybody heard that definition? Okay, a, a bunch of you have. That is true. That is, that is the way both the Old Testament primary words for sin speak of it. It's a deviation from the standard. It's a missing of the standard. And it's the New Testament word as well. But it's more than that. It's not just that there's a bullseye of a standard on that back door and it's got a center mark and I've got to, I've got to shoot for that center mark with my bow and arrow and I'm just off like an inch and a half. The aspect of missing the mark is I hate that standard. I don't want that standard. I'm going to pursue that standard. So it's not just a missing of the mark, it is a rebellious missing of the mark that sets up a different standard and a different pursuit and a different goal of my own. And that's really what biblical sin is. It's that I don't want what God wants. Um, Keller in his book on um, idolatry says this, sin is not just about doing bad things, It is also more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and will enslave us. Then he concludes and says this, Sin is primarily idolatry, that I am worshiping something rather than worshiping God. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about a worship disorder that our worship is oriented in the wrong way so that we are pursuing the wrong thing and seeking our satisfaction in the wrong, in the wrong places. Um, also, along with that, we've already talked about this, all people are sinners from the moment of birth. Sin renders people helpless to change themselves. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, right? So what does that mean? It not, it, it's not only um, a final statement about our position, it, it denotes an utter inability to do anything. You can't do a thing in your condition of deadness. You're helpless. A sinner is alienated from God, and as a result, he'll seek fulfillment from the world's system. So Christ won't be seen as a solution to his problem. Uh, he'll try and find substitutes that pr- promise fulfillment. He'll seek refuges and safety and security any place but in God. And he'll pursue his felt needs instead of his real needs. And that's the way counselors are going to walk into your office. When they come to see you, this is the way they're going to be coming to you. Sin will also lead to many other problems. Um, so sin is not just one, I- one issue. Um, it's not just one problem. It's typically multiple kinds of problems. So I say it this way. We never sin in isolation. 
And I mean by that two things. I never sin in isolation in that my sin always influences and impacts others. Always. You can't watch something sexually inappropriate and think rightly about your wife. It will influence how you think about her. You can't hear vulgarity and profanity and not be influenced by it. Uh, you can't you can't cultivate covetous desires on Amazon and not be influenced by it and not influence others by it, right? So it's when you sin, it always has a ripple effect in other people's lives. So we never sin in isolation. I also mean this by it. When you sin in one area, you will inevitably sin in other areas as well. Sin is like Doritos. You can't eat just one. I do eat one. But you can't sin just in one way. You excuse sin once and it will always lead to more. Remember the first time um, I dealt with someone dealing with the issue of adultery and it got exposed on a Friday night. I met with a couple on Saturday morning and the husband had been in serial adultery over a long period of time. And as that began to get exposed, you know what his wife's first response was? Now I know why you've been so angry. Why? Because his sin of adultery had provoked anger in him for a multiplicity of reasons and had complicated his relationship with his wife. It wasn't just a sexual sin. It was an anger sin. And they were deeply connected to one another. In fact, just for, just for grins, you might take a look through the scriptures sometime and see how often sexual sin is connected to anger. It's very frequent. And it tells us not only of the connection between those two sins, but it tells us that sin is often connected. And when you sin over here and you excuse this, it will inevitably lead you to excusing other things as well. So you never sin in isolation. We call this in the counseling world, I think Jay Adams um, coined this term, we call this complicating problems. So it's not just the one problem, but it gets complicated by further kinds of sin as well. What's the hope for the Christian who sins? Our sins don't affect our legal standing with God. So if we're Christians, uh, we are legally still in Christ. That doesn't change, but it does affect our fellowship with God. You can't be in fellowship with Christ and engaging willfully in your sin at the same time. We grieve the Spirit of God and we will ultimately incur the fatherly discipline of God if we don't change. There's another reality and one hope for, our belie- uh, for a believer and that is that our sin is redeemable and it's able to be used as an instrument of growth for means of appropriating afresh the truths of the gospel. Um, so sin actually will ultimately lead to hope if people are genuinely repentant and change. Soteriology, doctrine of salvation. Jesus sent, God sent Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself He is not, get this, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is not reconciling Himself to sinners. God doesn't need reconciliation. He's perfect. He is reconciling sinners to Himself. 
So we're the ones in need of change, and He brings that change about in our lives by reconciling us. Jesus' perfect life of obedience and substitutionary death provide the basis of the believer's restoration to to God. If you want the gospel in one word, it's that word, substitution. Christ gets my sin, I get His righteousness. That's the gospel. Uh, We believe that and we turn to Him in faith. Um, There is propitiation for God's wrath. There's imputation of righteousness. Imputation is a fancy word of accounting. So we are reckoned to have Christ's righteousness even though we do not actually have it. It's accounted to us and granted to us. We are considered to have it though we are not yet perfectly righteous. There is redemption from the bondage of sin and there is reconciliation to God. Here's the goal of salvation. Salvation frees us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin so that we can enjoy God. The goal of the gospel is not to liberate us from hell. That is a, that is a benefit, but that's not the goal. The goal is not also just to liberate us from the power of sin now, though that is, that is absolutely a foundational part of the gospels, that he liberates us so we don't have to sin, so that we can do things that are pleasing to him. The ultimate goal of the gospel is to get us to God. God, Piper was absolutely right with the title of his book, God is the Gospel. God is the goal of the gospel. God is the intent of the gospel. The gospel is so that we can get to him. Do you have this quote from Piper in your, in your notes? Yes, no? Good. You can read it later. Uh, sinners reconciled to God through repentance and faith. And uh, clarity with the gospel is essential because the means of justification is the means of sanctification. You will get people that come to you that are lost and you've got to give the gospel to them clearly and you've got to give it to them clearly so that not only are they justified, but that they will be sanctified rightly as well. Because if they're just attempting to be justified in the wrong way, they're going to attempt to live the Christian life in the wrong way. So the two go hand in hand. Christology, moving more quickly... Christ was fully man in every way, though he did not sin and did not have a sin nature. And he maintains his humanity in heaven even now. So, Zechariah 14, when Christ comes back to earth, his what touches the Mount of Olives? His feet. God doesn't have feet, but Christ, as the eternal God-man, does have feet. And his feet will touch the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split and will provide redemption and safety for the nation of Israel. So Jesus Christ was fully man in every way. He was hungry, he was born, he learned, he grew, he slept, he thought, um, he touched, etc. He was fully man. He also at the same time was and is fully God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He never ceased to be God. Uh, first, first John chapter 2 makes that clear that as the God-man, Jesus Christ is neither diminished as God nor as man. How can that be? I don't know, but it's true. No, no I, I don't say that sarcastically. We don't know. 
That's part of the incomprehensibility of God. How can those things be true? I don't know, but they are true. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Why is that so important? Because it took an infinite God to absorb an infinite wrath. If Christ isn't God, then He's not infinite. And if He's not infinite, He can't absorb the wrath of God against Him. And if He's not a man, He can't stand in my place. He's got to be a man. He can't be a goat and he can't be God that without being man to stand in my place. It's not an equal substitute. But he is fully man so he can stand in my place and he is fully God so he can absorb the wrath of God. Oh, it's such a glorious salvation we have, friends. It's such a glorious Christ. Uh, two notes there on books. Uh, Bruce Ware's book, The Man Christ Jesus and Michael Reeves' book, Rejoicing in Christ. Cannot... Um, recommend to you highly enough. Both those are outstanding books. Christ had two distinct natures, humanity and deity. There's no intermixing or intermingling of the two natures. And though he had two natures, he was one person. And as the God-man, he died and rose again as a substitute for his people. And he is the means of our life and he is everything that we need in life. If you take Christ out of Christianity, Spurgeon said, Christianity is dead. There is no gospel worth thinking of, much less proclaiming if Jesus is forgotten. We must have Jesus as the Alpha and Omega. He is the source of everything we have. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The most important thing you need to understand here is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a feeling. He is not a force. He is not an idea. He is, a, he is not a movement. He is... A person. He is not an enthusiasm, as Tozer says. He is not energy. He is not the personification of good qualities. He is not the personification of anything. He is a person. He can be sinned against. He loves. He hates. He knows. He speaks. He guides. He directs. He is a person just without body. So when you hear the word person, don't think body. Think personality in that What makes us what we are is not body, but what is internal to us. And that is what makes the Holy Spirit a person, not a body, but His personality. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the one who is needed for a person to truly change. Uh, Romans chapter 8, probably the greatest chapter in the Bible on the personality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will produce His fruit in every believer. So if there is a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, He will demonstrate fruit. There will be different levels of fruit, different quantities of fruit, different manifestations of fruit, different seasons of fruit, but there will be fruit. You look at that person and say, that person is bearing fruit that comes only from the Spirit of God and not the flesh. And that is with every person that is in Christ because they're inhabited by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God does what only He can do and that's He produces fruit. And secondly, He has also gifted all believers so that they can help other believers to grow in Christ. So MacArthur has said, the Christian life begins and continues by the power of the Spirit whom God has graciously given to us. Ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. And He created the church. 
as his means of caring for souls. He did not create the parachurch. He did not create individuals to live on their own. He, lay, he created the church as the means by which people would be cared for um, in his absence. The church exists for the purposes of worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and equipping. That's Acts chapter 2. And out of those priorities, we, we exist for the purpose of mutual edification, of building each other up, strengthening and equipping one another. And the church is the training center where that happens. It doesn't happen in a counseling ministry or in a counseling center. It happens in the church. The church has the people and the church has the book that God has revealed that contains all of the truth and the means of exerting pressure on people through church discipline and love to compel them to be obedient to the Word of God that nothing in the world can accomplish. So why would we go to the world for solutions when we have the solutions here? Why would we send them to a counseling center down the road when we've got the goods? Nothing else does like we do. The church also has the authority. It is, Paul says, the pillar and support of the truth. It has the means to hold people accountable and to help people to live according to the truth. The most effective place for counseling and discipleship is the church because it has the gifted men, pastors and teachers to equip the church to do the work of the ministry and to provide the context for oversight, discipline and correction. That's Matthew 18 as well as the, the, the majority of the epistles as well. So when we, you know, people will ask, do you send people out? Well, I send people to go to their medical doctor to make sure there's not something going on medically that might be, that might be producing or provoking these kinds of responses. Um, but no, counseling is all done here. We've got the tools. We've got the knowledge. We've got the answer book to life. And we've got the people that are committed to helping. I mean, why would I send them to someone who they're going to have to pay $125 an hour for that spends one hour a week with them when I'm going to spend an hour with them in the counseling session and then I'm going to see them at home group later that week and I'm going to be praying with them there and I'm going to be hearing what the home group leader is pouring into them and then I'm going to see them on Sunday morning and I'm going to see a host of other people on Sunday morning. The elders are going to be interacting with him on Sunday morning and then we're going to see them at a discipleship group on Monday evening. Why would I send them out there when we've got the people and the time and the place to do it here? So it's all about the church. Uh, Angelology, doctrines of angels. Angels are created as messengers and servants of God. They still exist. They exist as what we would call elect or good angels and evil or unregenerate, unsaved, rebellious angels. Those evil angels followed Satan in rebellion against God. They were cast out of heaven. We know from Revelation chapter 12 that as many as a third of the angels in heaven were cast out with Satan and followed after him. Understand this. The most important thing you need to understand about demons is this. They are intensely powerful. They are intensely strong. But they are created beings. And they are not infinite in any way. They are not omnipresent. They're not omni-anything. Now, they are fast. And their hearing is better than mine. But... 
They're not infinite in any dimension. Which means that they are subservient to God. And we do not need to live in fear of them. Now we don't have means to revile them, but we do have no means to be fearful of them. They are under the authority of God. Christians cannot be inhabited by demons because a believer cannot be inhabited by both light and dark. A believer cannot be under the authority of two masters. He is either under the mastery and lordship of Christ or he is under the mastery and lordship of sin. But he cannot be dominated and controlled by both. Now he may wander back to the sin field every once in a while, but that's not his master. Christ is his master. And because of that, um, the primary activity of demons is deception. Uh, The primary thing that demons do against us is to deceive us about what is true and what is not true. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the primary problem a counselee has is with his own flesh and deception from Satan's influence over the world system, not demonization. Listen, my, my greatest problem in life is me. And I have created enough problems for myself that, that, that I didn't need Satan to complicate it anymore. I did, a, I did a fine enough job myself, thank you very much. And that's where we need to help people is dealing with the issue of the flesh. One last thing, eschatology, the doctrine of last things. The believer has a great future that surpasses any trials on earth. Listen, the quote-unquote worst day on heaven in heaven is infinitely better than the best day on earth. Conversely, the unbeliever has a terrible future that surpasses any of the fleeting joys of sin. Listen, The worst day on earth is infinitely better than the quote-unquote best day in hell. No matter how terrible the problems were in life, a person in hell would gladly come back for whatever the tragedy was here in order to escape hell. And we need to focus people on those issues. The counselees, we need to remind them, you've got a great future coming. You've got a great glory coming. I know it seems long. I know it seems far away. But it isn't far and it, and it will be tremendously greater. We need to help them to remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16. Do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. Think about the person in the most difficult circumstance that you know of. Paul calls that momentary and light. Why can he say that? Because it's a comparison between that and the eternal weight of glory. So when you compare your problem to the glory that you will get, it's nothing. It's light. And when you compare the duration of your problem with the length of eternity, it is nothing. It is infinitesimally short. And we need to keep people focused on that reality. It's momentary. It's light. All right. I've gone in good tradition five minutes over. Let's take a 15-minute break and come back.